teams to be able to find a place to stand or the traction that's needed to begin to make changes and fix things. So we live in a culture where we are bombarded with information. And all that information is claiming to be important. It wants our attention. It's claiming to be true. So we have this situation where there's so much thrown at us. Um, It takes a while to sort through it all, to discern, to think about it. Propaganda, doublespeak, deception, lies, misdirection, subterfuge. We're all drowning in it. We sort out one thing, and we think we have some clarity on it. We think we found some truth, and in the meantime, everything has moved on. Fifty other things have been thrown at us, and no one cares about what we were talking about and figuring out the day before. The things that tell me what to worry about. The things that tell me what I need to be scared of. Who I need to be angry with. Who I need to hate. Everybody's screaming. But is anybody listening? Some people may think that 2020 is just another blow hastening the demise of a church that has been in decline for decades. And now your whippersnapper of a preacher, that's me, wants to talk to you about minutia of church history, about our restoration movement. And uh, I just have to put that caveat out there because you see the issues that we face, the anxiety that we carry, it's very real. And you might think that some sermons talking about a restoration movement is just one more way the church is putting its head in the sand instead of dealing with the real issues of our time. You might be tempted to think that, but I don't think so. For this reason, this world has been a tough place. This world has been a broken place. There's been brokenness and dysfunction every time in history. But at every time in history, the Lord has had dreamers. Dreamers, you could even call these people clowns of a sort. People who have held a vision bigger than the tyranny of their immediate circumstances. These are dreamers who share a dream with others. To help raise the thoughts of humanity to envision a different kind of world, a different kind of life. To envision what a life of conviction and mission and purpose could look like. And how would my life, my church, my family, my community 
be changed for the better if I truly sought God's will over my own. I think there's some surprising things in our history that may provide some light for us in trying to figure out steps to move forward as a congregation. I think some of these old dreams can ignite the passion of some of our own dreams. I may be naive for thinking that, but we're going to try it nonetheless, and we're going to see what God does with it. We're going to look at the lives of some early leaders in the Stone Campbell movement, as it's called, or the Restoration Movement. Men like Thomas and Alexander Campbell, Walter Scott, Barton W. w. Stone. And I don't expect that uh, we should feel the need to say that everything they believed was correct or needs to be repeated. And I don't see the need to try to waste time and effort saying that the issues of their day were exactly the same as the issues of our day, but there are some surprising similarities sometimes. And yet the seeds of some of these people's thinking, they have become the seeds of our own thinking, even today in 2021. Why do we esteem the words of Scripture so highly? Why do we reject creeds and any ecclesial institutional authority above the local church and above the elders of this church? Why do we choose adult baptism by immersion? Why do we choose to celebrate Lord's Supper on a weekly basis. You see, our, our history is not something I would normally spend time on from the pulpit, because you know me, I'm, I'm largely an expository preacher. I want to get in the text, I want the text to determine what we're looking at, what we're thinking about. Uh, I think the scriptures themselves need to be the focus of our agenda. But even my own high view of Scripture is in some ways an inheritance of the faith of my fathers and the tradition that I've received. But I have two reasons for doing this study on a Sunday morning. And we're not going to do this forever. It's not going to be a long time. And if this is not your thing, that's okay. Because um, uh, we'll move on and we'll get into other things. So don't worry about that. But the first reason is that I want as many people as possible from this church processing this material, thinking about these things. Uh, my bias is that church history belongs in a classroom study more than a pulpit. Uh, but even before the pandemic, our numbers for Bible class on Wednesday nights have been very low. And so one practical reason for doing this uh, Sunday mornings is to re reach as many ears as possible because if we are going to move forward as a church we need to have some consensus not only on where we've been but where we're going with the largest group of po uh, a large as group as possible but my second reason for wanting to do this series is this 
I believe that the restoration movement in its greatest significance is not really a story that began in the early 1800s with these people, but it's a story that began in Acts chapter 2. And I hope that in taking a year or so to preach through Acts, not only did we see the growth of the Christian faith despite all odds, but we read story after story after story of the Holy Spirit working in very real people's lives, in very real circumstances with very real problems, in their real day-to-day lives. And so restoration history is just one more little window, I believe, into the continuing story of what God is doing in this world. A continuation of acts, if you will. And I would argue that in every day and time, every day and time, the Lord has had people who have longed for the truth, People who have longed for intimacy with God and for a relationship with God above limitations, corruption, and the brokenness of their time. Sometimes even above the brokenness of institutional churches. But still, I want to look at these guys' lives because there's something special about the courage of these early restoration leaders on the American frontier who threw off the yokes of their various denominations in order to stand united with others on the basis of Holy Scripture alone, to take the words of the Bible as our only law, our only guide, and our common ground to stand on as opposed to traditions or creeds or other things that, creative though they may be, other men have come up with and other people. And so I think if you look at the state of the worldwide movement of Christianity throughout the ages, You can't help but wonder at Paul's words in Ephesians chapter 4 about unity. You can't help but maybe be a little bit grieved over all of the divisions within Christianity. Because as you read Paul's words, immediately you understand that he's describing a unity of body that is much greater than the divisions and the denominations that we've created. I'm not saying that God hasn't been at work in all of this and is not able to use this, but there is this longing for unity that these dreamers had that I think goes back to places like Paul's understanding and desire from Ephesians 4. I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body 
and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. So I'm calling this series The Unity Dreamers because all of these early leaders of the Restoration Movement held a dream of Christian unity and brotherhood that was bigger than the reality of their times, that was bigger than anything that they had ever tasted or experienced. And at casual glance, you can look at the lives of these guys, and if you're generous in your assessment, maybe you'll say, "Uh, these guys were ahead of their time. More negatively, people could say these guys were misguided, naive, a bunch of dreamers, a bunch of troublemakers, religious clowns, and yet they held a dream of unity in the body of Christ that gave them strength over the course of many years to persevere through seemingly impossible circumstances. Because of Of course, the reality is this. The strength of their conviction didn't come from themselves alone. They didn't begin a dream of Christian unity. A dream of Christian unity is a dream that fills the pages of our Bible. Unity is a particular concern, a particular concern of the Holy Spirit. And when you align your purposes, the purposes of your life, to those of the Spirit, He progressively makes all of the fruit of the Spirit available to you to give you the strength that you need to accomplish the tasks that you've been given, tasks that are close to the heart of God. So I would argue that the Holy Spirit has always been about working in the most unlikely characters and using them to do amazing things. And I think the story of the Churches of Christ is case in point. So we're going to begin this morning with the two oldest members of the Restoration Movement, Thomas Campbell, who was born in Ireland, and then another, Barton W. Stone born in Maryland. So Thomas Campbell was a burnt-out Irish Presbyterian in failing health. And the other, Barton Stone, he was a worldly man. He was studying law. He wanted to be a, a lawyer. And he would openly mock people who took their faith too seriously. So if you were in a high school gym class picking teams to start a worldwide unity movement among Christians, I don't think you'd be like, I'll take uh, take the burnt-out Irish guy in failing health. Or, hey, give me that arrogant punk who mocks Christians. I'll, I'll use that to build a unity movement among Christians. I think these are the last guys that would probably be chosen 
And yet, you know, in the, the pages of the Bible, it's filled with God's unlikely picks. It's filled with stories of unlikely candidates from beginning to end. The people God chooses to use, the people God chooses to be in relationship with, from the patriarchs he chooses. Look at Jacob. That guy was a con artist, heel grabber. Who are the people that God chooses to be his people? Some of the most stubborn people in the world. Who does God choose to be a judge or a prophet or a king? The prophet Samuel telling Jesse, hey, these, these sons are great and all, but is there anyone else? Show me the runt of the litter. Somehow this matches the story of our Lord who chooses to enter human history in a backwater town in a manger. A Savior who chooses to be his revolutionaries who chooses fishermen, a tax collector, and a terrorist to be his apostles. And it doesn't stop in the Bible. God's unlikely picks fill the pages of history. We are in an auditorium, I would argue, here today in a parking lot that's filled with some of God's unlikely picks. So Thomas Campbell, he was born February 1st of 1763 in the county down of Northern Ireland. Thomas's father, Archibald Campbell, had been raised a Roman Catholic, but later converted to the Church of England. And so he kind of grew up a little bit Anglican was probably under the influence of his mother, Alice McNally Campbell, that kind of pushed Thomas toward Presbyterianism. For all the problems of Presbyterianism, it still seemed preferable uh, to choose Presbyterian over other groups that had men sitting on thrones who were speaking uh, in God's place on behalf of God, whether that throne was England or that throne was in Rome. So Thomas, he was well-educated for his day. He undertook advanced education. This is uh, Northern, Engl uh, Northern Ireland there where he was born. He undertook his education, though, advanced education at the University of Glasgow, and Whitburn Seminary, which was off operated by the Seceder Presbyterian Church. And in 1787, Thomas married Jane Cornegal, who was of French Huguenot descent. There she is. I'm assuming she was younger and he was younger as well. You know, there's not a lot of good 
digital pictures of these people, so. I don't know how accurate they are, so. They're pretty good, I think, some of it. So anyway, uh, Thomas married uh, this looker here, Jane. And uh, being a French Huguenot descent, being Presbyterians growing up, uh, you think of England, uh, the wars between Catholics and Protestants within Protestant groups, uh, the way French Huguenots were persecuted in France and other places throughout Europe. Wars between Catholics, Anglicans, Protestants were in this family's very recent history, and they had to have been an influence on this couple. Uh, Thomas knew the things that religious people did to other religious people in the name of God, actions that in reality grieved the heart of God. So when he finished school and he finished his formal seminary education, Thomas Campbell was an old light, anti-burger, secession Presbyterian. It's kind of a mouthful, isn't it? So for practical purposes, we need to understand what this is a little bit. This means that he was a part of a split that was a part of a split that was a part of a split that was itself a split. You think that would influence your thinking a little bit? When is enough enough? So Thomas, when he graduated, he kind of had a mission for Christian unity, even as a younger man. He poured the strength of his youth into healing one small split within his denomination, namely the split between the burgers and the anti-burgers. Ironically, in some ways, the split was along the lines of two political parties over in Scotland. The politics of Scotland had divided the church that he was a part of in Ireland. And the conflict centered on the minutia of wording of an oath that the Newtown Burgesses were required to take. Well, the split between the burghers and the anti-burghers had taken place in 1747, decades before. And although the political issues had long since been resolved, the church split remained. The churches were still separate from each other. So Thomas Campbell, along with some other brave souls, poured their energy into healing this division in their church over an issue that was no longer an issue. Kind of like people fighting, and no one can even remember anymore what the fight was about. We're such strange creatures, aren't we? And so even from an early time, Thomas Campbell was arguing, I believe we can have unity. And we can base that unity on the Scriptures. And although Thomas Campbell had poured years of his life into reconciling these, this insignificant split of a split of a split of a Presbyterian church, in the end he failed. 
He failed to persuade the general synod of the seceder Presbyterian church to reconcile with each other. And this experience, it left Thomas Campbell burnt out. He was demoralized. He was exhausted. The years of stress and strain, they had broken his health. And if this was the end of things, you might be tempted to pity this unity dreamer. But this wasn't the end for him. You see, Thomas Campbell had a young son in 1788 named Alexander. And Alexander Campbell was a sharp and gifted young man who got to witness his father's love of God, his father's love for the Word of God, and his father's passion for Christian unity. How often do we parents underestimate the power and potential of the little eyes who watch us? And this also wasn't the end for Thomas Campbell because it was recommended to him by friends and doctors that in order to make a full recovery from this exhaustion and what it's done to your health, you should travel to find some place that's filled with fresh air and wide open spaces. And there was a place like that. People were calling it the New World. And there was a brand new country that had just been formed a few years before called the United States of America. And although Thomas's plea for Christian unity based on the Scriptures largely fell on deaf ears in Ireland and Scotland, there were others who would possibly be persuaded in that new country. So in April of 1807, Thomas Campbell boarded a ship headed for the Americas. Tired, worn out, broken down, Presbyterian preacher on his way to a new beginning in the United States. And so now we're going to pick up with another unlikely unity dreamer, a worldly law student and mocker of sincere faith named Barton Warren Stone. Stone was born Christmas Eve of 1772, just before the American Revolution, in Port Tobacco, Maryland. Here's Port Tobacco, Maryland. It's not a very big port, if you can tell. Looks nice and green. Barton had no memory of his father, who died when he was very young. But his mother, Mary, was a strong frontier woman, and she took care of this frontier family after her husband had died. And they had enough assets set aside to be financially stable, which was a huge blessing, especially in that day of time. Stone, as a young child, was christened an Anglican. But later on, his mother became a Methodist. But by and large, Barton had no interest in religion. He found the competing claims of groups like Episcopalians, Methodists, and Baptists 
all claiming to have the truth and all saying different things, he found that confusing and didn't want any part of it. And so Stone largely dismissed faith in Christ as not being worth the time and effort and instead focused on something more exciting, politics. Here's a picture of him as a young man. Again, I don't know what kind of digital camera took that photo, but it's not very good. When he was 21, he received a portion of the family estate and used his inheritance to further his education and his dream of becoming a lawyer. And so he moved to Greensboro, North Carolina, to a school started by a guy named David Caldwell, Presbyterian man, um, to study at Caldwell, it was called Caldwell Log College. The logs have rotted and it's no longer there, so I don't have a picture of that. But he was studying Latin and other things with this man. Well, at the school, Stone, along with his other more worldly-minded student, the other more worldly-minded students who made up the majority of that school, they upbranded and teased the other students who took their faith seriously. And they had labeled those religious uppity-ups as the pious ones. And it was his job to help, kind of almost a ringleader, helping put these people in their place who took their faith too seriously. Stone was said, once said that he believed that good education could be stunted by too much Bible study. And besides, Stone had grown accustomed to enjoying certain unnamed worldly comforts. But Barton's college roommate was one of these pious ones, a kid named Benjamin McReynolds, one of these annoying, Jesus-minded college roommates. You know, who knows the good that comes from little eyes watching parents? Who knows the good that comes from genuine faith lived out in front of other people, even in college dorms and things like that? So Benjamin kept at Barton, kept pat, pat, pestering him, pestering him over and over again until Barton finally agreed to go hear a revival speaker named James McGreedy. Now, Stone had never experienced a preacher like James McGreedy. Here he is. He spoke with passion. He spoke with conviction. He spoke with intensity. He was a master orator on the American frontier. And he wasn't afraid to stir things up. Well, McGreedy, he was a large man of ample frame. And it was described of him that he had a voice like thunder. And it was said that the ugliness as he contorted his face, face when he talked about things like sin and hell and damnation, the look of his face, it would scare people. He spoke with such power and such conviction. 
And he spoke with such intensity that he would routinely make his congregants fuming mad at him. To the point where at times people would break into the church building at the end of his sermons and, and take his pulpit and carry it outside and throw it on a fire and burn his pulpit to a point that they would write death threat letters to him using their own blood as the ink that they wrote their death threats to this preacher. This guy ruffled feathers. And uh, he got through somehow to this young, worldly-minded law student. So to just get a taste for maybe some of what this frontier preacher was like, I found some sermons attributed to McGreedy. Great titles. Uh, just to give you a little flair for this. The Blinding Policies of Satan. The Sinner's Guide to Hell. The Hope of the Hypocrite. The Deceitfulness of the Human Heart. And a, a sermon entitled, The Doom of the Impenitent. Those are things that got people's attention. He was the kind of revival preacher that spoke with such power and force that he could hold sinners over the fires of hell where you could almost hear them squirm and sizzle and you could almost smell it. But his preaching struck Barton Stone to the heart. And after going to this revival, being confronted with a preacher of sincere conviction and power. He couldn't sleep that night. And this is the first time in his life that Barton W. Stone seriously contemplated what it would look like to give his life to Jesus in truth. But in considering the cost of discipleship. Barton Stone resisted fully embracing Christ at this time. Embracing a religious life would bring the disapproval of relatives. It would bring on him the mocking and loss of his friends. It would be a surrendering of worldly comforts that he had become accustomed to. So Barton Stone continued to resist full surrender to Jesus. The passionate preaching of McGreedy and the fear of hell had made its mark. But it wasn't until a year later, in 1793, that Barton Stone was completely undone for the Lord. You see, it wasn't hell, fire, and brimstone that undid him. But a sermon from another Presbyterian minister named William Hodge who preached on something he had never heard about before. Who preached on the love God has for sinners. And 
and hearing this sermon on the love of God, Barton Warren Stone, he ran off into the woods. And later writing about the experience of that night, he says this, I yielded and sank at his feet, a willing subject, talking about the Lord. I loved him. I adored him. I praised him aloud in the silent night. In the echoing grove around, I confessed to the Lord my sins and folly in disbelieving his word so long and in following so long the devices of men. Jesus had taken the heart of stone and made it his own. Get it? Heart of stone, made it his own. But this is just the beginning of the story for this young unity dreamer. Because over the course of the next 40 years, the theme of his life would really become the theme of John 17. Jesus' prayer for unity. And so I I take the time to look over these lives a little bit, to try to get a flavor for what their concerns were, what their heart was, what their desires were. Because I think they're born out of scriptures themselves. Words like this. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message that they may be one Father. Just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me. May they be brought to complete unity. Complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. The dream of the unity dreamers is not dead because it is the dream of Jesus Christ himself. And we're a part of that legacy. And we're a part of trying to live that reality in our lives. So if you have needs this morning, Rob, you can come up. Uh, Whatever those might be, we always offer an invitation here uh, for the prayers of this church. If you want to put on the Lord in baptism, you can let us know any way that we can help you. And uh, I hope we can have some fun these next few weeks with this odd little study in uh, church history. So uh, we invite you to come forward and talk to me if you have some kind of need as we stand and sing together.